Hi everyone, my name is João and I'm your host of the Software Crafts Podcast. Today with me I have Abby Bankser. Abby has 10 years in our industry. Overall of this time, she worked as a tester, but the later bit was mainly in systems, platforms and infrastructure testing, which leads easily into SRE. I can also tell you that you can find her at a conference near you speaking about some of these topics. Hi, Abby, and thanks for your time to be with us. Thank you so much for the invite. We've had a long time trying to schedule this. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, <laughs> it was uh, interesting nevertheless. Talking about time, the heuristic of today is time box the unknown. What is your experiences time boxing the unknown? Oh, it's such a good question. I think it's a really interesting heuristic in that I feel like heuristics are often because they're rules of thumb, because they are guidelines, you kind of have to know when to apply them and how to apply them. You have to have enough information to apply them. And this is almost a heuristic about gathering enough information to be able to use heuristics and to be able to, um, you know, make decisions and, and, decide ways forward and, and things like that. So I think that's really interesting about this one. I think, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which is, which is interesting, right? Because you are talking about heuristics. If I can summarize, it's that heuristics are useful, but you need to know your context to apply them because they are heuristics. They are not patterns. Absolutely. And this one is very good to get context. So, what was the last time that you time box to understand the, the, the environment around you? I think I time box exploration of things all of the time. I'm pretty sure that's our jobs in software engineering is just a perpetual continuation of exploring things um, for deeper understanding as we go and with the right amount of time. I think maybe a really good recent example is that my team has recently decided to try and codify some of our company processes and company um, capabilities. And we wanted to codify that into a CLI tool for our developers. So things that you might need to do, for example, you might need to store a secret securely so that the application can gain access to it. You might need to generate a test environment. These are things that are hopefully consistent across the different applications in the organization. And they're hopefully things that we can kind of put a bit of a user experience interface around, even if we change up exactly how we implement it behind the scenes. So exactly where do you store that secret and things like that. And that's why we thought it was a good argument for having some sort of a CLI tool. Uh, and so we've just started working on that in the last kind of few months and this was one of the first things that we, we really time boxed was how do we even get started with this? How do we package this? How do we get this to our developers? How do we update it? How do, you know, what does the release process look like? And what we didn't want to do is we didn't want to get to the point where we had a beautiful, uh, you know, CLI that works fantastically on our personal computers. And so the, the first thing that we did really, we spent about maybe a week basically trying to get an end to end experience of this building a CLI tool that all it does is print hello, packaging that up from a private repository in a way that can allow us to release it in a secure and private way and down 
make it downloadable and upgradable by our users in a secure and, and easy to use way. And that was a really good way of making sure that we felt like we could deliver the, this was a part of our team OKRs. And this was a way for us to deliver, confirm that we could deliver our intention within the scope that we had planned for that OKR. And that was hugely successful, I think, because while there were still some unknowns when we came down and tried to you know, implement the final feature, um, they were small in comparison to some of those bigger tackling uh, fundamental questions we tried to answer up front. Well, thanks, uh, thanks for sharing. I think that uh, it's a good example how to time box. And um, you also triggered me because you were talking about this was the part of the, the AK OKRs of the team. So my question is, when you or the team are time boxing, how do you make this transparent, if you make this transparent? So do you mean, how do we um, articulate that this is a bit more of a, maybe a spike rather than the final deliverable and how long we think we're going to take and what we're going to achieve? For instance. For instance, cool. Yeah, I think this is actually some of the hardest things and, and something that we keep refining as we go through different projects as a, as a team. And, and this has been true in all of my teams, all of my organizations. So a running challenge. Um, for us, one of the challenges has been around at what point do you consider the project like scoped and ready to be kind of kicked off in, in earnest? The reason why this is important at my current organization is because when you kick off a project, you actually send an all company email. We're still quite a small company. It's really nice to see what other parts of the organization are working on, even if they're not directly related to your you know, day-to-day -day experience. And so that conversation of, you know, when do you send that kickoff email? When do you tell the company you're working on this stuff? And how quickly does then the follow-up email come, depending on how much you've done in this time box scoping ahead of time? Um, in the case for this, we felt like we had some room to decide how mature the features were going to be, what our, our deliverable from a feature point of view was going to look like based on trying to fit that into our quarter. So we had some wiggle room there of we could do this in a little bit more of a flashy way or a bit more of a bare bones way. And so for us, it was really important in this instance to use time boxing during the scoping to be able to decide, make a decision on where we thought we could achieve in the kind of complexity of our implementation. So, um, so when you say, when you ask like, how do we make that transparent or do we, um, I would say it's not super trans it, it's visible in like, for example, our team Slack channel, there'll be conversations, people can see it, but we are not pushing the information to anyone in this instance until after we had actually completed that time box, really. Um, then we pushed out the information that, Hey, we we're going to be working on this and this is what we're going to achieve. And this is the business impact that you will see in, at the end of the project. Uh, very, very interesting. How the, um, the team in this case use the, the communication artifacts or communication channels that are available, time box broadcasts, refines, make decisions and move forward. So um, I think that there are a couple of heuristics for our audience to mine <laughs> from this conversation. Yeah. And now turning things around, did you ever witness time boxing going wrong? 
Ooh, that's a tough one. I think that like anything else, a technique can have all its best intentions and, and be a really effective technique and just not end up turning out the way you expect. I think the biggest risk with time boxing in particular is kind of knowing when to draw the line because so I've seen it go wrong, I think maybe in a few different ways. And unfortunately hindsight's 2020 here, right? So it's hard, hard to sometimes see these coming until they've happened to you. But first of all, I've seen it happen where people have done kind of a, a spike, like done what we did, trying to figure out where are all the sharp corners, what do we want to explore before we kind of commit to a time frame for our deliverable. And then they realize that their exploration was a bit too generic. And actually when they go and they try and apply their time boxed exploration to the problem at hand, the real problem they're trying to solve, actually they, they aren't able to in as easy a way as they'd hoped, or maybe they have to completely scrap their plan and kind of go back to the drawing board and explore. So I think to summarize one challenge here is making sure that when you're time boxing, you're, actually targeting the heart of the problem uh, in a very kind of applicable, realistic way, rather than putting at risk that, oh, yeah, the marketing says that it can do this thing. Well, actually, you know, try it, see if it works, you know, put it all the way through. So I think that'd be one example. And I think the other maybe flip side of that and why it's such a tightrope sometimes to walk is when you time box and you kind of cut yourself short from delivering maybe a complete solution. So I think this happens when you're using time boxes, not to explore a new idea, but you're using time boxes to basically decide um, what features to deliver. So you think of this as like your MVP, you, you fit everything you can in before your delivery date and hopefully you've prioritized correctly. And when you deliver on that date, you have all the, the highest priority things, even if you don't have everything. And when you do that, when you set those deadlines to deliver, you start to put into the crosshairs conversations around testing, conversations around reliability, conversations around um, usability, accessibility, thing, things that are um, really important, but can be harder to quantify. Uh, and you also start to put into question whether or not you have like explored the full space, user space that you need to. And are you actually addressing kind of edge cases or are you just kind of going happy path? And is, is that okay? So again, to summarize, I think the second issue I see is that sometimes a time box will leave you for want uh, and you end up actually doing a fair amount of cleanup after the fact because you didn't actually tackle the the complete problem the first time around because of your deadline that you were trying to hit very interesting very interesting how the the how things can go wrong and we are 10 minutes into this interview and and the word that keeps me in my mind is around the unknown Right? Because in the end, this heuristic time box, the unknown is to discover unknowns or to bound ourselves towards a solution on the, the, the problem space. What are the techniques that you have on your toolbox to also to discover what is around the unknown? 
That's a great question. So, um, I mean, I think that the most basic technique here is to ask questions. <laughs> um, and that's a bit of a obvious one maybe in some ways, but I think that if you're in an early stage of a project, you're in an early stage of exploration, being able to catch yourself saying, I assume or I expect or I know something is is something that's really important and, and can have some really big kind of feedback um, potential if that happens. I think that in order to do that, it's really helpful if you have a diversity of opinion in the room. So bringing in kind of a potential user or or a user persona, like someone who can fill that space of what you're talking about is great. Bringing in someone who may have to be a customer support or some other support of this after you've delivered it to give that perspective is great. Basically bringing in those, bringing in more perspectives so that you do, you less have to think about um, their perspective and you can start thinking broader, right? You've got people with that expertise, let them come in the room and, and speak from their perspectives and that will uncover more unknowns, I think. Um, let me think if there's other ones. What, what else do you What else do you do for uncovering unknowns? <laughs> I also use visual uh, collaboration to explore that, mm -hmm. right? So um, part of my work now moves what I call strategic implementation, right? So uh, uh, companies have a strategy, hire the big guns, McKinsey's and Bain and BCG, but then there is what a friend of mine calls the gap. How do you translate this to strategic implementation? Namely with companies that are digital now, right? That is pretty much every company. Easy. Mm -hmm. So what I do is bring collaboration because it's very easy for people to agree on the why. But then when you break down to the what and to the how, this is when diversion starts. So I've been working with a senior leadership to really get out of the woods and, and try for them to understand that although, although people say yes to their why, to their strategy, we need to break down these. It's not their job to know all of the details until the operations, but it's their job to help the companies to at least, or, or the people in the company to align on the what, and then these people can align on the how. So I use visual collaboration because it's very powerful uh, I'm with a customer now where they use the same concepts, but people talk about different things. So I just map things on sticky and put visually, okay, we are talking about the same concept, and I'm seeing two different meanings. It's fine. Where do you want to go? So I also use these as a means, and this can also cascade towards teams. Let's visualize, let's you know, make our assumptions, how do we think that systems work, how the interactions are, and that also will sometimes lead to solutions that don't require software, which is yeah. very, very interesting. <laughs> so- uh, I think that's such, a, such an interesting point you make, and it's, it's something I know I've used in the past as well, and I think you're, you're application to this is is so spot on in like an example i've used in the past is is trying to map out a delivery pipeline for a piece of work how does this actually get to production and you're leaving that kind of publicly available and asking people to walk by it and 
make updates based on their understanding until you get to the point of actually this is what your software does on the way to production. And that's why it's challenging these things. So, um, yeah, I think making things visual is a, is a really good point that you made. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And you were talking about these and I remember a couple of months ago, I was with a engineering manager of a company that want to move to DevOps. And someone says, everyone on this room knows how a continuous delivery pipeline works. I was fine. Let's pick up the stickies, put that up. They agree on 50% of it. And I told these, that's why you cannot move forward without agreeing now, because if you don't agree on the basics now, when you move to execution to implementation, will be chaotic because you don't agree now. So spend a bit more time now, which I think that also is a way to discover where are these unknowns, where we don't agree with each other or we have different mental models because we have those. Talking about mental models, let's go a bit more to today, right? If we look to your career, as you describe yourself, you start in testing space and you move towards platforms and infrastructure with SRE. And today also you are with Chaos Engineering Community. That I think that bridges these. How do you see Chaos Engineering to break assumptions? Oh, that's all it does is break assumptions. Um, yeah, I think that is that is its strength, right? Is that with Chaos Engineering, you are identifying an area you want to explore, you are setting up a scenario, but then you're sort of letting go control to a certain extent um, in order to, to explore what happens there. And I say to a certain extent, because I think one misconception that can happen with chaos engineering is that people think it's like literally a monkey running around pulling cords out of data centers. Right. Um, and that's, and that's absolutely not what it is. Like, Chaos engineering at its best is an extremely uh, focused and clear experiment that has ways to cut it short. If it has impacts that are unexpected, it has ways to track its its success or failure or its impact. Uh, and yeah, so I think just to say that, that that is, when I say lose control a bit, I mean that within, within reason. Um, but yeah, I think that the reason I really like chaos engineering, and it's a pattern that I've used outside of that, just in testing and just in pair programming even, is it forces you to articulate what you do assume. So I think so often we're like, oh, I'm going to make this change. And you make the change and you're like, yeah, that looks right. <laughs> and it, But what's actually happening in your brain is you're making a translation of like, oh, that changed color. Oh, yeah, that should have changed color. Okay, great that's cool. Uh, you know, that, that looks right. I'm happy with it. And that, that moment of, wait a second, I see something I would, didn't expect. Oh yeah, that is what I would expect. Happens so quickly. Some of us don't even identify it or it, all of us don't identify it at some times. Right. And I think that the reason I really like chaos engineering and being explicit about our assumptions up front is that you're, you end up learning more and deeper about things because you might have, known what to do and known exactly how it would work. And yet there's still one unexpected twist that you had been like, you hadn't yet written down as an assumption and that happened. Um, so that's one of my big things with chaos engineering is it forces you to call out your assumptions so that you can actually challenge them when the system is under strain. 
Definitely, definitely. And and that is the, um, the interesting part, right? Because for, uh, well, if the system has enough complexity, right? If you don't have a complex enough system, it's very expensive. Because although it's called chaos engineering, actually I feel that is the first time that we are trying to do engineering in software although lots of people call themselves software engineers as you describe is proper engineer you need to let go control but you need to have a control mechanism to stop the experiment you need to think about an experiment you just don't yolo it you really need to think through design validate and go which I think that is good for our industry but also what I observe is that sometimes case engineering can be very interesting, not only on the technical terms, if I do A, will I get B, but also to test processes. Our organization is so big, are really people paying attention to signals? Stuff like that. Did you ever witness or try to do experiments around this area? I think they've happened unintentionally before. Um, I, I have not, I have to be honest, but I think it's actually a really brilliant application of it. Like imagine a chaos engineering experiment where you are essentially testing your response mechanisms, right? And I think you need to do this cautiously because you are still dealing with humans here and you don't want to generate high stress in humans or something that like that without like the understanding of how that would impact them. Right. But the idea of having something happen where an, a metric is changing or an alert is going off and, and seeing how that that gets handled and doing that in a respectful and responsible way, I think is basically testing your on call or your response mechanisms, um, which, yeah, I, I haven't not done that, but I think it would be quite interesting uh, within reason. Yeah, really, because this is exactly the point. If we think about fire marshals, they are 80% of their time training and 20% of their time in action. But actually in the software industry, we are 95% of our time in action and 5% training. And with techniques like these will allow us to reason, right? Because now everyone, almost all of us work from home, but back in the day, in our corporate buildings, once a year or once every six months, we need to do the fire drill is everyone going to the exit if the, the, the fire drill goes on? Why we don't do this to our software, right? If the big red flash pops up, are people paying attention, right? You're making, you're making me think back to, um, I'm actually a very expired dive master in scuba diving. Um, very, very expired. But in as a part of being a dive master, which is like the first level of professional diver, you have to complete uh, what's called rescue diver. And it's basically a non-professional level of certification, but you can think of it like being a first responder in an ambulance, like being able to be in an ambulance or something to that effect. You, you know how to deal with um, key security issues around soft, uh, scuba diving. And I remember that, you know, there was things I knew would happen. I knew that at some point when I was underwater, someone was going to pull a regulator out of my mouth and I was going to have to deal with the fact that I now didn't have access to air. Uh, I knew that I was going to have to deal with someone who was, um, you know, unconscious at the surface. You know, there, there were like scenarios that I was aware were going to happen. And I may even have been aware this is the scenario I'm about to go enter. But during this process, during this day that I was out doing this training, 
all of a sudden, one of my colleagues, uh, someone, you know, from the community kind of just started stumbling a little bit and fell over. (laughs) And I remember kind of looking at him and being like, is he okay? What's going on there? And I went and I checked on him and it, it turned out that that was a part of the process. It was that like, training when you know you're going to be training, training like hand in a workbook and fill out this workbook is valuable. It teaches you the mechanics. It teaches you the muscle memory. It teaches you how to do things. But it's also realizing that with certain skill sets comes certain responsibility and knowing how to kind of be responsible in the moment and know when to apply your expertise or your skills or even just your caring to the situation matters. Uh, And that's making me think here what you're talking about, right? Um, Being able to actually apply that uh, when things go wrong, how to, how to go about and solve them and, and practice the things going wrong more than just being in the firefight of production all the time, which is what most organizations are uh, would allow it. And I think we do that with, game days a lot, right? So that's more the workbook style. Like we pre-plan this game day. We say we're going to do something and someone's going to need to be the incident commander for this and and do that. But what we don't do is, at least what I haven't done previously, is how do you get people to know when they should go into action? Like how frequently is it that we're talking in a Slack channel somewhere about, hey, I'm seeing this weird thing. Are you seeing this weird thing? And it takes us like 20 minutes to even realize that we're in an incident. Right. Because it's kind of this like abstract problem that's only happening sometimes and you're waiting for confirmation and all of that. How do we train improving that response time? And I think you can only do that with practice and and encouragement towards it. Definitely, definitely. And you were describing what chaos engineering community is pushing, right? The the, the mean time to discovery. Is this really mm-hmm. a problem? Is not? And this is where my theory came from, right? Because I'm very interested in weak signals. Can we send these weak signals? Well, we can. We can send a fake alert in Slack to see if people are paying attention or or messing up with our observability system to insert fake signals to, to trigger something. And I was wondering if you know, from the real world, and, and, and you gave from scuba diving an example, <laughs> which was just you you were alert, right? Because you know that you were on this certification path, so something will happen. And you pick up the, the weak signals, right? And this was not on a workbook, but was to test, right? Mm-hmm. And I have the feeling, uh, here comes my question, that as a community of people that create and maintains software, we could increase our sensitivity to weak signals. Do you agree with this statement? It's tough because I do. And yet I also am quite frequently combating noisy signals. Right. And so I think I, if I'm going to maybe make a, a, stake in the ground on this topic. I think what I would say is I do agree with you. I think we'd be better identifying weak signals. And one of the biggest reasons why that's been hard for me and for teams I've been on in the past has been that there's so much noise that it's like false signal, not just, you know, 
high signal, not just that we're, you know, everything's always on fire because that's not the case. It's that we have noise of, of signal that is not valuable for us, not actionable. Maybe it's self-healing. Maybe it's incorrect. Maybe it's uh, an issue because of, for example, traffic patterns changing, right? So the, the week after Black Friday, you know, you if you compare your metrics week over week, you're going to look like you're crashing. Um, you know, think, things like that that happen. Um, and so we end up not being able to fine tune our weak signal awareness well enough because we, I, in my experience, have ended up over the line towards noise too frequently. So I think that's a really key challenge of what we're trying to achieve. The thing that you learned on these 10 years, how to tune your noise signal. Do you think, are you asking, do I think I've learned over my 10 years? Or, or what did you learn? I, I'm sure that you learned. I, learn. I, say, I don't think I'm a, a pro at this yet. I think this is, this is an ongoing uh, learning and ongoing experience building. Um, definitely a conversation around actionability of alerts is key. I think that the idea that something goes off and you can't do anything about it is a very quick way for people to start ignoring when things are alerting. The next most common reason I think people ignore things is because it becomes known that that's an issue. And I think, um, It's not that you can't take action per se, but it's like a bug in the backlog that hits us once in a while and we've got some noise around it when it hits, right? But, oh, we, we already, we know we can fix it. It's being prioritized kind of thing. And with this, I think that, um, you know, one technique I've used is, is targeted silencing or of alerts or targeted like literal code commits to ignore alerts. So putting a, putting a comment around an alert and saying like to do, you know, here's the JIRA ticket number. This is firing until we fix this ticket. So we're not going to have it fire anymore. And what's really interesting about that kind of a technique is that it goes through code review. So now all of a sudden you have, you know, basically a group agreeing to say, we're going to just turn off this alert until it becomes high value again. Um, and That's always a debate, right? People don't like the idea of comment out the test so that you can release the software. Same thing. People don't want to comment out the alert. They're like, oh, but we can just ignore it. And it's that's where you start to get in those conversations of how dangerous is noise in your alerts. And I think that 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 is the deep conversation, right? Because we as humans, we can can get resilient or, or blind. Right, mm -hmm. blind. Our brain becomes blind to sometimes of signals, and I really like your technique because your technique is to trigger a discussion. Mm. Because if someone doesn't agree, okay, we need to stop and sit down to discuss, and we don't move forward. Mm -hmm. Which means that other work will be uh, impacted because now a group of uh, people that create software are sit down to discuss this, which means that this is important. Mm -hmm. So I just love that how, how people can, well, inject signals into the system on a meta level with these simple techniques. Really, really interesting. Thanks for this. Uh, we are getting towards the end of, of the interview, and I have two more questions. 
one very challenging. What is the, the question that I didn't ask during this interview related to anything that we discuss? What was the thing that I forgot? What was the thing that you forgot? To ask, you know. We talk about time Oh, you're asking talk, me what you yes. forgot to ask me. Oh, yes. the meta questions. Okay, exactly. I'm, I'm, I'm Why with not? you now. I'm with you now. Um, around time box heuristics, what haven't you asked? I think you've done a very good job, actually. Uh, very, I like, I like the breadth of things we've covered, right? And yeah. they are maybe only loosely associated with the heuristic, but I think that they, they do flow quite well and they're all quite important. I guess maybe we haven't, we talked about the fact that, that all heuristics are rules of thumb and they need to be context aware, but we didn't maybe talk about how we decide when to use time boxing. So what kind of contexts are good for time boxing and what kind of context maybe we aren't as effective um, for it? I think that you, uh, it's a nail on the head. So what are your heuristics to decide when you you need to time box? I need to ask myself the hard question. Um, Let me think. So I think that Time boxing for me is really effective best when you know what you're trying to achieve. So I think it's really easy to say that time boxing is good for ideation or time boxing is good for exploring, you know, how to do something. But I think I've seen scenarios where both of those have failed massively, where when you time box ideation, you're cutting short all of the creativity in the room. And I've seen, but I've also seen situations where if you don't cut it short, it just could go on for ages, right? So, and and vice versa with the exploration of kind of how to do something more kind of technical and implementation based. So I think for me, when I try and apply this, it's a trigger in my own head to say, when do I know I'm done so that when I hit that time box, I can introspect on have I achieved what I want to achieve? Because then I can, if I decide I haven't, I can have that hard conversation with myself or my team, you know, whoever's working on this to say, well, why haven't I? What is it because I ran out of time? Is it because I, because I approached this in the wrong way? Is it, And if it's because I ran out of time and I can say concretely that I'm on the right track and I need X amount more time, then I think that's a good use of time boxing and I can extend my time box. If it's that I've approached it the wrong way, maybe it's about stepping back and rethinking things before you re-enter. And that's the only way you can kind of get feedback on are your spikes useful? Are they effective? What can you do better the next time Um, is knowing what good looks like or trying to upfront set your, we've talked about setting your assumptions, setting your expectations for a chaos experiment, set your expectations and your assumptions for this time box spike so that you can check yourself at the end of it, write that down physically and actually be able to check yourself at the end of it. Definitely. I really like how you phrase it because also you talk about introspection, right? So uh, if you are doing one of these spikes time box and then didn't work out, why it didn't work out? And with, enough time with this group of people doing enough spikes, you're going to start spotting the patterns. So I will say that the heuristic here is uh, take it easy, 
and uh, keep doing it, right? Keep reflecting on it. But I think that you encapsulate that very well, all of these dimensions that makes this a complex problem. Uh, but let's leave this thought also to the audience, how they tackle this complex problem, because it's one of those. Absolutely. Last question. And this one, you know, the question is a pretty straightforward one. What are the resources that you recommend to the audience? Books, podcasts, blog posts, you know, anything that they can deepen their knowledge. So within the scope of the conversation we've had here today around time boxing, um, I think if you haven't had a conversation um, around what a tracer bullet or walking skeleton, or there's a few other kind of terms for it. If you haven't had that kind of a conversation before or explored it, that's a topic that you may want to explore. And I'm sure I can get some good articles on it to you, Joao. And, um, but yeah, I think that's something that's great to explore. I think in the way of other resources, um, I have to admit, I've been a bit, uh, saturated with things recently you know my my book my list of books to read has has grown and not shrunk recently uh and so i have a hard time with that but what i've really been enjoying is the more bite-sized kind of learning so there's a lot of people that are doing uh newsletters and, and a lot of people are now doing paid kind of curated newsletters and these are very small sums of money to pay for someone to kind of actually invest in doing this newsletter on like a regular basis with with core ideas and, and things like that. And I think um, I've been really enjoying the pragmatic engineer one. Uh, and Amory Charette has been doing a newsletter, which uh, has been fantastic around quality coaching. Um, and there's a third one and I'm just trying to find the name of it, but uh, the uh, hello, stay sassy um, uh, newsletter. I just absolutely love as well. It's quite, it's anonymous and it's quite a, a fun newsletter to read. I think it's really kind of steeped in experience in the industry. So yeah, I'd say I can share the three that I I'm following these days, but I think also have a look for who's doing these kinds of following, following newsletters and, and try and get involved in that. Cause it feels a bit more uh, detailed, a bit more experience based uh, for me and it, and a bit more relevant than sometimes reading entire books on a subject. Um, so thanks for sharing also how your learning and and uh, and uh, consumption patterns change uh, i noticed the same uh, with myself and uh, also thanks for your time to be with us and sharing your knowledge yeah thank you so much for having me as i said it's been a long time coming and, and it's been lovely i really appreciate your thoughtful questions yes it was a really nice time thanks You can follow us on Twitter at scraftspodcast, visit our webpage softwarecraftspodcast.com or visit our page on LinkedIn. Hope to have with us next week.